This is Trek FM. Helling frequencies open. This is your Trek FM Hyper Channel for Saturday, June 7th, 2014. I'm Christopher Jones, and we have two stories for you today. Klingons exert influence on the International Space Station, and 3D printed food brings replicators one step closer to reality. First up, apparently there has been a Klingon invasion of the International Space Station, though it could have been much worse. Astronaut Steve Swanson, who is currently the commander of the ISS, and no, that is not a mirror universe facility, created a mission patch for Expedition 40 that paid tribute to his Star Trek fandom and the franchise's influence on society. And interestingly, he did this through Klingon imagery, not Starfleet. I found this interesting because I picture an astronaut who's a Star Trek fan or a designer who's a Star Trek fan creating something related to NASA. Using the Starfleet motif, and I think back to Enterprise, and especially the episode First Flight, where we get sort of that right stuff flavor from the 22nd century, and the path of astronauts following through the missions that we have today to something like the Warp Five ship, the NX-01, and then on into Star Trek later on. But apparently, Swanson is a big Klingon fan. And in this article that I found over on the website collectspace.com, said that astronaut Steve Swanson wanted a quote-unquote badass design for his crew patch, and chose this Klingon logo for its inspiration. Now, the first emblem that he created really does look like a Star Trek Klingon patch that you might see somewhere. It doesn't look anything like something you would see from NASA. It looks like something I'd probably pick up on the vendor floor at Star Trek Las Vegas or somewhere. It has the Klingon emblem that we're accustomed to, the triangular emblem, and then behind that is the Earth, and then above the Earth is a representation of the International Space Station, but it's a batleth, pretty much like a batleth. And then along the outside, where you would normally have astronaut names or a mission name, it has Klingon script. So it's very, very Klingon looking. Swanson's daughter is a computer science major, and also began her studies in graphic design. So she worked together with her dad to modify the Klingon patch to bring it into something that might be more acceptable by NASA. And maybe could make its way to being the actual patch for the mission. She replaced the batleth with the space station, an actual representation of the space station, and the Klingon language around the side was changed to be the names of the six-person Expedition Forty crew. The Klingon emblem in the front, the triangular one that we're accustomed to seeing on Klingon view screens and everywhere else, was modified to envelop a Soyuz rocket. So, if you picture the top of the triangle going up, it actually has a Soyuz rocket in there. But otherwise, to a Star Trek fan anyway, it's still completely recognizable as a Klingon emblem. Otherwise, the patch doesn't look like anything Star Trek or anything Klingon. And there are two versions: one with a more realistic Earth. To be honest, I'm not really crazy about either one of them, but it's interesting to see how she modified them. 
to take her dad's original concept, which was completely Star Trek, and, you know, try to make it something that might be palatable to NASA. In the end, NASA's lawyers rejected the design, citing copyright concerns. Although, I have a feeling that if NASA really wanted to use this imagery in a patch design for a mission to the International Space Station, they could probably talk to CBS and work something out, because there's always been a great connection between the space program and Star Trek. But it's a little bit odd to have a mission patch, really, that that has such an obvious Star Trek motif in there. So it was modified, and in the end, the patch resembles the original design about as much as a Klingon resembles a human. The basic shape is there, in this case, a round patch, but that's about it. But still, Swanson managed to bring some Klingon to the station anyway, Once up there, he posted a selfie of himself on board the ISS, wearing a t-shirt with a giant Klingon emblem on the front. So, he got there. I'll put a link to this story in the show notes. You can go over to collectspace.com and you can see the actual patches. You can see the original patch that Steve Swanson designed, as well as the modifications that his daughter made. And you can also see the final patch that was actually used for the mission. And what I'd like to know from you is if you could design patches for NASA, which Star Trek elements would you sneak into your designs? Personally, I'm thinking that I would have an Andorian fight scene going on in the background of all my patches. But let me know what you would do. You can find me on Twitter. My username is cbrianjones, and I'd love to hear from you hear about your space patch designs. Next up, when you want something to eat in Star Trek, you just walk over to the wall, tell the computer what you want, and wait for it to appear. It's really easy, right? Well, such hands-off preparation of dinner could be closer to reality than we think. 3D printing technology is quickly moving from the realm of plastic objects to the world of cuisine. A number of companies have commercial 3D food printers coming to market, and their applications range from the creative to the practical. Culinary artisans can use them to create seemingly impossible shapes, while healthcare professionals can use them to provide the elderly with more satisfying meals. The technology is even being touted as the gateway to a sustainable, eco-friendly food supply as the world's population grows. I've talked a lot about 3D printing on this show, I believe, over the past couple of weeks, because 3D printers seem to be everywhere. Just about everyone I know who is producing a film right now, an independent fan film related to Star Trek, is using a 3D printer to some extent to create props. And most of the time when we hear stories about 3D printers... They're being used to print actual objects, whether they're props for film, as I just mentioned, or whether they're for medical applications in producing something to help people who have lost joints or have other injuries. Food is something that you don't really think about coming off of a printer. But the design studio Dovetailed in Cambridge, England, recently unveiled 3D printed fresh fruit on demand. And through what they call spherification, 
Liquid drops with different flavors are formed into custom shapes, like strawberry-flavored raspberries. And this technology is really aimed at chefs or people who are interested in creating creative dining experiences. So that's when I said culinary artisans can use this technology to create all kinds of shapes that they couldn't create before. I know there are certain stores here in Tokyo where you can go in and you can see really intricate and amazing things that people create with chocolate and and other you know sugars and such. They're usually really really expensive, but they're really creative as well. So three D printing of food makes that possible in a new way, and they can just do amazing things that you would really never. Imagine doing with food in the past. Kjeld van Bamel is a 3D printed food expert from the Netherlands, and that's when you know you're living in the 21st century, because never in my life have I ever heard of anyone referred to as a 3D printed food expert. But here we are; we have them now. Van Bamel works at TNO, which is a 3D printed food innovation lab in the Netherlands. And they have done a ton of work in this area. They have created truffles, and they have created Fabergé eggs and boxy spice bites. And if you go to the article that I'm referencing here, which is on a site called Motherboard, you can actually see these little spicy bites. There's a photo of them there, and they remind me a little bit of those cubes that the aliens from the Andromeda Galaxy, in by any other name, converted some of the Enterprise crew members into, and and they look like they would probably just crumble, the same way those cubes did, if you were to crush them with your fingers. So these photos are quite interesting, though. And the next focus is on creating textures along with the shapes, which again is why I said I get the feeling that they might crumble. And food printers are. This may sound far fetched to you, but food printers really are beginning to enter the commercial market. There's another company called Chalk Edge, C H O C, like chocolate, and they sell what they say is the first 3D chocolate printer. And this printer runs you roughly four thousand eight hundred sixty-five dollars, which is a pretty exact figure. To be calling it roughly, but the article reports it that way. And then Foodini is another machine made by Natural Machines that is going to be entering the market this year as well. There's another one called Cubify from a company called ChefJet, and Cubify 3D prints structural sugar. So this is a 3D sugar printer. And it can print anything from sugared skulls to Valentine's Day roses. So remember that printing a chocolate rose before heading to Ten Forward could be a surefire way for you to win Troy's heart. So you might want to pick up one of these printers, keep it in your quarters. But you're going to need a lot of money for it because these printers currently cost upwards of ten thousand dollars. But you can imagine five, ten years from now, they'll probably become commonplace. Maybe not commonplace in our own homes. We might not have one sitting in the kitchen, but restaurants may have them. Certainly, confectioneries will have them. 
I'm really interested to see what they do with them. But beyond just creating shapes and textures and fancy chocolates, there are more practical applications for 3D food printing technology. Van Bommel believes that the main benefit of printing foods will include adding alternative ingredients like algae protein, beet leaves, and even insects into our food. Now, of course, the idea of insects in your food will make your skin crawl, certainly does mine, but you hear more and more about it these days, and there's no doubt that there, there's protein there, there, there are nutrients there that would sustain a person, and algae protein, of course, is very beneficial for your body, but these are things that you don't necessarily want to eat. If someone puts that on your plate in front of you, you're probably going to turn away, Right. But if they could 3D print food with this in there so that you really don't know it's there, it could be a new path toward a sustainable, eco-friendly food future. And so that's one of the hopes that is there for 3D printing technology. Not only could it change the public perception of these things, but it could actually help our food supply in the future. And there's also another real-world application to this, and this is in the area of healthcare. And when you think about people who, when they're elderly, they have trouble chewing. A lot of people have to have very smooth food, almost liquid food, and it's not very appetizing, right? You look at it and you're just going to be spooning sauces all the time. People want to eat real food. And so one thing that you could do is that you could actually use 3D printing to make food that's easier for elderly people to eat, but has more appealing shapes to it, and it feels more like a meal. And this is actually being done already in Germany. There is a company called Smooth Food, or a product called Smooth Food, which is co-founded by BioZune. And Smooth Food is actually developed specifically for this purpose of taking foods and processing them in a way that it's more palatable for elderly Germans to eat. And so I could see that coming all around the world. I can certainly see that here in Japan where our population is aging rapidly and and we are very heavily slanted elderly population and it's going to continue that way in the future which is one reason we're probably closer than anyone else in the world to having robots who actually can tend to you when you're older. But that's a topic for another show. So this food, uh, the smooth food here in Germany, it's made from natural ingredients and it's processed into a puree through a printer that has 48 nozzles. And then through that printer, it's constructed into shapes that are much more appealing. And there's a photo on this website, if you go look at the article, where they actually have, I'm not going to say it's that appealing to me really right now, but I can see where they're going with this. It actually looks like a plate of food that you're being served somewhere instead of you just having a blend of liquids that you need to take in to get your calories and your nutrients. So that's very interesting as well. So a lot of potential here for 3D printed food, even though it's something that seems futuristic and far-fetched. And what I'd like to know from you is, would you eat 3D printed food? And you will need to go look at the pictures first to tell me what you think about it. 
Then I'd like to know, do you think this technology will gradually supplant traditional methods of food preparation? So for example, could our kitchens one day just have a printer on the counter? And would that then lead eventually to Star Trek style, walking up to the wall, telling the computer what you want, and waiting for it to appear? I'll put a link in the show notes to this article, and you can go over and check out the photos. And then again, let me know what you think about 3D printed food. Now, I do have a network update for you to close out the show. It's Saturday, and that means fan films and music. On Continuing Mission this week, we continue our look at fan series as I'm joined by Greg Locke, who is a UK-based filmmaker who is producing a short film set just after the original series episode, Balance of Terror. And besides continuing that story of how the Federation dealt with the Romulans after that encounter with the Enterprise, it also aims to create connections between Enterprise, the series, and the original series. Because we know what the 22nd century looked like, we know what the 23rd century looked like, we don't know very much at all about the 100-year gap between those two series. And so in his film... Greg aims to create some aesthetic connections and to make some sense of the transitions that Starfleet naturally would have been going through between the late 22nd century and the late 23rd century. On Melodic Treks this week, Colin examines the two renditions of Deep Space Nine's theme, the slow and majestic sounds of seasons one through three, and how they got pepped up for seasons four through seven. Colin contrasts and compares the two versions of the theme, as well as delves into some of the thought process behind the change on the part of composer Dennis McCarthy. You'll find both of these episodes in your feeds right now if you subscribe to the individual feeds for Continuing Mission and Melodic Treks, or to the Trek of Film Complete Master Feed. And of course, you can get these in all the places that you usually get your podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, Swell, BlackBerry, SoundCloud. We're pretty much everywhere. Just search for Trek.afilm or the name of the show you want to hear and we'll pop right up. You can also go to our website and you can stream the show from there or grab the RSS link and put that into your favorite podcatcher. Well, that's our look at the news for today. If you're streaming this show from our website, remember that you can have it delivered directly to the device of your choice by subscribing to the Hyper Channel show feed or to the Trek of Film Complete Master Feed, which contains every episode of every show that we do. I'd also love to chat with you about today's stories, as I mentioned earlier on. You can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find the network on Twitter as well. Our username is TrekFM, and quite a few of us tweet from that account. We sign our tweets with our initials, and we'd all love to talk to you there. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We have a community on Google+. Just search G Plus Communities for trek.fm, and you'll find us. We also have forums on our website at trek.fm slash forums, and you can send us a voicemail as well. You can also use our contact form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Well, thanks as always for listening. I hope everyone's having a great weekend, and I'll be back with you tomorrow with some more stories. And until then, go watch some Trek. Trek.